appropriate because we are here to talk about, you ready? Wait for it. Evangelism, okay, telling others about Jesus, telling others our story. And let's be honest, okay, let's just be honest with your pastor here this morning. You did not come here this morning wanting to hear a sermon about evangelism, did you? Okay, it's raining, there's the game, it's Thanksgiving, you're thinking about food and travel, or your kids are on death's door, whatever. You want to hear something fun. You want to hear something about thankfulness or family or joy or three driving tips through Atlanta, or whatever, and I've got nothing for you on that one. Okay? Just drive on 75 North to your own peril. But uh, confessions of a regular guy, Pastor, I haven't exactly been Jim Dandy excited to preach about evangelism either for probably many of the same reasons that you aren't excited. Maybe it's guilt, or it's shame, or failure. I mean, I have to, to tell you, I stand up here in a lot of ways as a failed evangelist, and I'm paid to do this stuff, right? I mean, there, there's times in my life where it was, was more true, where I was looking for those opportunities and taking um, the, the, the windows that God gave me to speak truth to people and to share the good news of Jesus Christ. Now, not so much. And so I, just, I need you to know, I, I don't stand up here this morning as the purveyor of all good things related to evangelism. I need God's grace I need his mercy, I need his help, just like you do. And if you're a guest, you need to know we're making our journey through, through the book of Acts, and we didn't just like stick our finger in the air and say, hey, what do we want to talk about this morning, okay, to entice you? No, no, no. We go through the scripture systematically, and whatever God's word says to preach on that week, that's what we preach on. And so here we are in Acts chapter 8. And if you have been playing along at home, you know that, that Acts has been pretty awesome to this point. It's been about the apostles and their great leadership and their preaching. And there's been great waves and moves of the Spirit and awesome sermons and lots of people coming to Christ. But here in chapter 8, we are going to find, for Oaks, a marked transition. Because evangelism that's being done by the great leaders to masses of amounts of people all of a sudden changes, and it's regular people like you and me doing personal evangelism on a one-on-one basis to the people that we know. And a couple of questions I want you to have in mind as we move through the text this morning is, is, first of all, why am I not excited about evangelism if that's the case? Why don't I want to share my faith? I mean, Christian, we have the most incredible, awesome good news in the world that, that answers all of life's ultimate questions. Why aren't we more excited about sharing that? Why aren't I, as your pastor, more excited about sharing that to people who don't have it? And let me just tell you, I think Acts chapter 8 and the story of Philip can really help us. Because here we're going to find three little evangelistic vignettes or stories, and in them we're going to confront three obstacles that are very common to us that were, that were present in those situations, but three obstacles that can hinder us from sharing our faith. And, and Philip's going to be really helpful. He's going to show us a way through them. And so the title of this sermon is Eunuch, Deacon, Magician, Truth, which kind of sounds like Tinker Tailor, Soldier, Spy. It's destined, I think, to be one of the great sermon titles of all time. And now whether the sermon itself is, I'll let you make that determination. Okay. Deacon, Magician, see I've already messed it up. Eunuch, Deacon, Magician, Truth. All right, so Deacon, that's our first vignette. Let's look at Acts chapter 8, beginning at verse 5. Now, those who were scattered 
went about preaching the word. And Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them. And many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. And so there was much joy in that city. And here's just a very simple lesson for us. I want us to see from these first five verses about evangelism. And here it is. No one is too far gone for the gospel. And there is no one better than you to reach them. Okay, very simple. There is no one who's too far gone for the gospel to save them. And there is no one better to reach them than you. See, it says in verse 5 that Philip had been driven out of Jerusalem by persecution, and he went to all places to Samaria. Okay? So if you had any choice of destination that you wanted to go to, if you had to leave Tallahassee, where would it be? It'd be like you deciding to go to Gainesville for some gosh-forsaken reason, okay? Maybe you want to go there after the national championship game and just drive around the campus and give them a little what-what or whatever. Okay, that's fine. You hate them and they hate you, in Jesus' name, of course, okay? Jews hated Samaritans. Samaritans hated Jews. I mean, the Samaritans, the Jews were just strange. They were inbreds. They were... They, exercise some sort of false religion. Sounds like some snake-handling Baptist church from the Tennessee mountains where my parents live. It's just one of those kind of things. And so very odd, but Luke is telling us something important here by the fact that Philip goes to Samaria, and here it is. The gospel for us knows no bounds. It is not confined to a particular group of people. Now, you and I may not have a hard time with that one. I mean, maybe our grandparents did or our grandparents, great-grandparents did, certainly, that it was hard to conceive that the gospel transcended ethnic barriers, certain races, nationalities, tribes. It was hard for, for let's be honest, for, for, for those who came before us to wrap their brains around that and to say, hey, it doesn't matter what race or creed or ethnicity or whatever, but all who are trusting in Christ are a part of the body of Christ. That's maybe not so much our hurdle. Our hurdle is not ethnic, it's much more, I think, cultural. It's cultural. So when we think about militant atheists or those on the other side of the political aisle or social progressive or those people who live on Gain Street, whatever, okay, right? If we don't wrap our brains around the idea that the gospel knows no bounds, we will totally write off certain segments of our society and people. We'll do it. But, but even worse, when we start thinking about the hard-to-reach people in our lives, we will write them off as well. Okay, all of us, right, are about to confront the horrors of extended family Thanksgiving. Now, some of you, this is a blessed thing, but some of you, I know, it's, it's your living nightmare. And you think about your family member or your distant cousin or your family acquaintance, and you will say, Pastor Paul, they are just too far gone They have thrown in the spiritual towel. They are hardened. Their life is full of sin. It would take an absolute miracle for this person to make it back from where they are over to where Jesus is. And and let me just tell you, I totally get it. Um, There is a family member, and and if they're listening to this podcast right now, all I will say is, yo, all right? And and 40 years of sharing our faith with with this man, okay? 
and he's almost 70 years old, and it just seems that the older he gets, the more hardened he becomes, and he's militant and autonomous, and he just seems impenetrable. But keep in mind something that we learned from Philip. No one is too far gone for the gospel. And Tim Keller says it this way, as only Tim Keller says. He says, everyone is hopeless apart from the gospel. Everyone is evil and lost apart from the gospel. Therefore, you know, ready? No one is any more evil or hopeless than anyone else. So anyone can be saved and changed and incorporated into the family of God. Four Oaks, do you believe that? I mean, honestly, do you really believe it? Do I believe it? When you think about that hard-to-reach person in your life, is there not some tinge of like, man, I, I don't know. This is going to take something supernatural, which, by the way, is precisely the point. It's not about you. It's about the gospel. That's the power of God. You see, guys, the, the, the apostles struggle with this too. Next week, we're going to be introduced to Saul, who, let's be honest, was the person least likely to come to your Easter service, right? He was the least like that. He was killing Christians. Even after conversion, the apostles wanted nothing to do with him. But remember, it's not about how bad they are. It's about how good the gospel is. Paul says in Romans 1, the gospel is the power of God for salvation. See, it's not about you. It's not about me. It's not about our eloquence. It's not about um, what a great apologist we are. When God's truth is proclaimed, when it is told, Paul says in and of itself, it is vested with this power to change people's lives. So no one is too far gone for the gospel. In part two here, no one is better at reaching them than you. So Philip's backstory here, I think, could be a point of great encouragement to us. Let's think back to, to Acts chapter 6, what we looked at a couple of weeks ago. Philip is, is, the, is, is, the, is one of the first deacons. He, he's not an apostle. He's not a professional. He is just told by the apostles, hey, go organize a ministry team, help serve some food to widows. Um, we just need, your, we need you to get your hands dirty. But something happens in Acts 8.1 that totally changes Philip's trajectory. Listen to Acts 8.1. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Now, now this is so fun, interesting that, that Luke puts this in here. Except the apostles. Now, isn't that interesting? We would totally expect at this point, if God is scattering the church to make sure that they go out and tell other people about the gospel, why didn't he just send the apostles, right? Aren't they the professionals? Aren't they the paid staff? Aren't they the ones who were trained? Aren't they the ones with the experience? But I think Luke is telling us something very important, Four Oaks, about how the gospel message is spread. See, up to this point, it's been all about the apostles. They're great preaching. And just imagine if you're in the New Testament, in Jeru- if you're a New Testament Christian in Jerusalem, and your preacher is Peter. That's pretty cool. Your preacher is John. Okay, your preacher is. James, it was very easy for them probably to lean on the great preaching of the apostles to bring their friends to these great worship services, yet God scattered them, all of them. Twelve remained in Jerusalem, thousands were sent out, and the question is why. Probably several reasons, but here are two that I can think of. Number one, there's more of them. There's just more of them. 
Jesus had given a commission and said, go, go, go spread the gospel to the world. And it's not going to do for 12 apostles to take this upon themselves. The gospel is going to be spread by a multitude of people, but not just by a multitude of people. Secondly, the second reason I think this happens is he's saying that, that regular people are better oftentimes at reaching regular people, right? As a pastor, I either get two respons- one of two responses when I tell people I'm a pastor and, and, and they're not a Christian. It's either totally antagonistic or they'll totally tell me what they want me to hear, right? Or if they've cussed previously in our conversation, they definitely circle back around to that to apologize, okay? Regular people don't do that with regular people, right? Okay, regular people don't do that with regular people, which is why I think we need to completely recapture the idea of calling, A lot of times we think, hey, it's the pastors and the priests and the fathers and the full-time ministry leaders that are called. The Scriptures is like, no, no. Every vocation is holy. Whatever you do today, whether you're a doctor or a lawyer, a teacher, an engineer, you you do mom's morning out, play groups, room moms, PTO, whatever, okay? It's holy. You have been set aside by God to do that particular thing. Thing. We need Christians for Oaks situated in all of these places because that's how the gospel goes forth in numbers, in impact, in personal leverage. And Philip is a great example of this. Now, before we leave this point, what is an obstacle or barrier that kind of keeps us distant from this idea that? that that we are the best people for reaching the people who are around us. What, what, what is an obstacle to that? And I'm going to bullet down to a word that, that verse 4 says, or it's called scattered, but I'm going to reframe that and say it's chaos. Look at verse 4. Now, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Scattered literally tumults, chaos displacement. Hey, when this wave of persecution descended upon the church, this does not mean that the the Christians left Jerusalem on a prayer walk in the desert. Okay, That's not what was going on. They were refugees. They were wandering. They were displaced. And if there was ever a group of Christians who had a better excuse to not be evangelizing, it was these people, right? It was these people. But you know what? The opposite occurred, and, and, and I think it's because they seem to understand something that we as 21st century, postmodern, comfortable Christian Americans don't get. And here it is. Disruption and chaos, Four Oaks, is not an obstacle to evangelism. It's an occasion for evangelism. Because their lives may have been in disarray. But they saw it for what it was, an opportunity provided by the very hand of God. Guys, am I exaggerating to say that some of us really feel like that our lives are just tumult? Our lives are just chaos. Our lives are just scattered. We have kids and work and sports and health and displacement. And if there was ever a better a group of 21st century people than evangelical Christians who say, who give a million reasons for why we can't serve, a million reasons why we can't open our home. And let me say this, I love our home. I absolutely love it. 
I love to go home and lock the door and put do not disturb on the outside. It's one of the glorious things. It's our little haven, our little gas fireplace where we run up $800 gas bills in the winter. It's really awesome. I love it. I love the cookies. I love the whole deal. I love to bunker down. And here, here's the only little minor small problem with that. It's completely unbiblical, right? <laughs> Never does Scripture talk about our homes that way. Scripture is constantly saying, hey, be hospitable. Open up your home. The more chaos, the better. Bring them in. Let them see the messiness of your life. Your bathroom doesn't have to be clean. Your carpets don't have to be scrubbed for Thanksgiving. All of those good things that we think have to be in order for ministry and evangelism to happen. And let me just dispel a myth for us. There will never be a perfect alignment, a life circumstance that will allow you to minister and serve and evangelize unencumbered. It's not happening, okay? Susan, I've been waiting for 22 years. It hasn't, has it happened? No, it has not happened. We're still waiting for that time. It's never been that way. It's never, it never will be that way. Because here, here's the deal, Four Oaks. We bring a set of wrong, a wrong set of expectations to this sort of thing. You see, we, we oftentimes view our life as ours, right? This is my life. This is my time. These are my hobbies. These are my choices. This is my schedule. And we need to be really reoriented to the idea that, no, 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 that's, we got it backwards. This is God's life. And he's given our lives as a stewardship to be used to honor and glorify and serve and evangelize others. Our life is a platform Philip and the early church totally understood this. You see, we don't need to see the disruptions in our life as an obstacle. We need to see them as an opportunity. Every illness, every loss, every setback, every displacement, just like Josh saying just a minute ago, all around is fading. Nothing seems to last because it's true. Perfect, perfect opportunities to proclaim the one thing that never changes. And that is Jesus Christ and the gospel. So, the deacon here teaches us that no one is too far gone for the gospel and that you are the best person for reaching them, not in spite of the disruptions in your life, but through them and because of them. Character number two, the magician. Point two, back to Acts. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he, meaning the Holy Spirit, had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God." 
Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now when they had testified and spoken to the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Second lesson here about evangelism for Oaks, that's very simple. It's not too complex, and it's simply this. Evangelism, for those of you who have done it, and you know this, evangelism is hard. It's hard. And it's hard because of the nature of our message and because of people's messiness. It's hard because of our message. We'll talk about this and unpack what we mean by that. It's great news, but it's also hard news. It has to be bad news before we get to the good news. It's hard because of our message, and it's hard because of people's messiness. Let's look at the message first. Here it says that Simon was a magician. And when we think about magician, we're not talking about David Copperfield, right? Okay, who makes the airplane disappear or any of that sort of stuff. Or David Blaine, who I think is really possessed by the devil. But that's a whole different thing. Um, This is a fortune teller. This is a mystic. This is someone who's doing signs and wonders. And and actually, and, and all kidding aside, there's probably a great demonic influence. It shouldn't surprise us because Paul tells us very clearly in 2 Corinthians 11 that Satan is a, is a deceiver, and he can do signs to lead people astray. And so oftentimes in this life, when we see things that we cannot understand or that seem like there's some supernatural power behind them, don't be surprised, okay? Satan is, disguises himself as an angel of light to deceive. In this situation, it says that Simon, who was caught up in all this, believed and was baptized, right? So good news. However, something is not quite right. Because it says that Simon keeps on doing what he did before he believed and was baptized. See, he sees the power of the Holy Spirit. He says, I want some of that. I want to give you some money for that because I think I can make money for this whole Venture And it's interesting, and note this, how Peter speaks to him. Peter does not speak to him as a believer. Peter speaks to him as an unbeliever. Look at what it says in verses 20 and 21 again. Peter said to him, and, and this is just a good little Thanksgiving dinner speech, okay? May your silver perish with you, Aunt Jane, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. That always goes over well on those dinners, right? And it really raises the question, what in the world? Okay, it, it, Peter, what are you saying? Is, is Simon the magician really converted? Are you saying he's not? Oh my goodness, he, he said, it says he believed and was baptized. And I mean, what are you doing, Peter? And guys, understand this is not an academic question, is it? Many of us, when we think about that hard-to-reach life, we are in the exact same position. We think about that adult child who made a profession of faith or that family member who for a little while seemed to have spiritual life and now they've fallen away and they're not walking with Jesus anymore. I know some of you have told me, hey, Pastor Paul, I'm praying for this person in my life. They're my one life that I'm, I'm carrying as a banner into this series. And I, I just don't know, I don't know where they are. They might say they're a Christian, or maybe they made a profession of faith a long time ago. And this is not an academic question, right? A lot of us are right in the middle of this. 
But it's important that we get clarity on what's happening here because it really impacts the message that we need to be giving people. To begin to make some sense, we have to ask this question, Four Oaks. What was it that really captured Simon's heart? What drew him into these new spiritual realities in the community of believers? Was it Jesus in his majesty, in his person, and his work? Or was it something else? Was it the flash and the dash and the promise of fame and the signs and the material benefits? And I believe it was the latter. I don't think Simon's faith was biblical faith at all. And I think we see a, a real clear parallel in the ministry of Jesus. Look at John 2, 23-24. Just, just think about how eerily similar these situations are and how Jesus responded to this very situation. Now, when he, that means Jesus, was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed, see, same word, many believed in his name when they saw the interestingly, signs that he was doing. Remember, Jesus was doing all kinds of signs, just like Peter, just like John. But Jesus, on his part, isn't this interesting, did not entrust himself to them because he knew their hearts. Guys, that's not a good thing when Jesus doesn't entrust himself to you. That means Jesus is saying, you don't love me. You're not trusting in me. You're not turning in me. You're not in love with me. You're in, lear- you're in love with what I'm doing. You're in love with the signs and the miracles and being a part of this um, entourage and getting cool things and having material blessings. That's not faith. That's not the faith that pleases me. Not an academic question for us. It tells us something, Four Oaks, something crucial about the message that we share with people. Guys, when we share the gospel, make no mistake what we are doing. We are not promising people a better life now. We are not promising people a happy marriage or financial blessing or health in this life or a successful career, although God can give those things when He wants, how He wants. But He is not our debtor. When we are calling people to Christ, we are telling them the worst news of all, that they are a sinner, that they cannot save themselves, that the wrath of God is being poured out on them, And just like Paul says, they need to flee from the coming wrath to the arms of Jesus Christ who offers them grace and mercy and forgiveness. We've got to give a healthy, heaping host of bad, sounded like the Beverly Hillbillies, a healthy, heaping host of bad news before we can get to the good news. A lot of times we want to make it sweetness and light and Jesus is going to fix all your problems. And guess what happens when Jesus doesn't? People fall away. People, people, People fade. People are... Um, they're disillusioned, they're embittered because they never had saving faith. If you have someone like that in your life, I I beg you, just preach the gospel to them. Just tell them to turn. Tell Tell them to come to Jesus. Don't give them false assurance for something they did 20 years ago that's had no lasting impact in their life. They need Jesus today. So, It's a hard message. It's a great message. It's it's an awesome message. But it's a stumbling block. 
Every one of us has to stumble over the cross of Christ and crush our pride and our self-preservation and say, God, I can't do it. I need you. I want to trust in you. And that has to be at the heart of our message. A second obstacle that makes evangelism hard is not just the message, it's the fact that it's messy. See, folks, we're not about drive-by evangelism. Okay, that's not what the apostles are about. See, see, look what happens in this passage. They share the gospel with Simon, which leads to engagement with Simon. They weren't rid of Simon, were they? Simon jumped on the entourage. And this engagement with Simon led to problems and messiness with Simon. And if I've got to be brutally honest, one of Paul Gilbert's biggest personal obstacles to evangelism is not the message, but it's the messiness. Because I know that if I share, if I engage, that's not the end, okay? That's only the beginning, right? That neighbor, that person you work with, the person you see at Starbucks, the person that's in your carpool, then starts the text and the phone calls and the engagement and the conversation and the scheduling and the coffees and, oh my goodness, actual demands on my time. Can you believe that? Can you believe that? Guys, we have to understand in evangelism, the messiness of people's lives makes a demand upon us. And even when people have genuine conversions and they're brought into the church, they bring all their stuff with them, don't they? They're not instantaneously sin-free. Are you instantaneously sin-free? No, no. I asked your fellowship group, and they, and they told me okay, that, that, you were, that you were not. And this messiness helps make sense, I think, for what's a a, a difficult theological point here. I want to mention this before we move on. Why did Peter and John have to go down to Samaria and lay their hands on these believers so they could receive the Holy Spirit? What in the world is that about? I think it it deals with this idea of messiness. Because we need to make a couple of things clear here for us. Because this passage and others like it cause people consternation. Paul makes it very clear in Romans 8 and 9. If you've been converted, if you place your faith in Jesus Christ, you have the Spirit of Christ. The Holy Spirit lives in you. 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, all, Paul says, all have been baptized into the Spirit at the point of conversion. There's one indwelling, and there's many fillings that happen subsequent to this. But here, there seems to be something unique that's going on. And I think, I think it has to do with this whole idea of messiness and maintaining the unity of the church. Because this is the first time in the book of Acts where the gospel has gone out to an entire people group. This is a new gospel frontier. The gospel has just known the bounds of Jerusalem and the Holy Spirit had already been poured out. This is the first instance where gospel was taken to a group of Gentiles outside those bounds in total. And Peter and John, it was very important. They had to go down to Samaria they had to, it had to be demonstrated beyond any shadow of a doubt that the Samaritans were truly believers and that they were, a now, they were now a part of the church. So there's other times when this happens too. It happens with Cornelius in Acts 11. It happens with the Greeks in Antioch where the apostles went down and laid their hands and received the Holy Spirit. But there's many, many, many more times that this doesn't happen. And this, there seems to be some significance to this idea that what Peter and John and the apostles were, were just keen on maintaining was the unity of the church. That the gospel was going out to Jerusalem and to the Greeks and to the Samaritans, and they were giving their apostolic seal 
of approval. They had to deal with this messiness as well. And what we learn from the magician is that evangelism is hard because of the nature of our message and the messiness of people's lives. But for folks, make no mistake, it is worth it. Because the gospel can change anyone and God can use you to do it. Last point, we're going to move through this one quickly. The eunuch. Let's be honest, not on the top 10 list of most desired professions. Okay, And if you're a kid here, you don't know what a eunuch is, text Pastor Josh after this and he'll tell you all about it. Or go ask your parents. Now, an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go towards the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And so Philip rose and went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you are reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the message of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom I ask does this prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more. And went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus. And as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. One quick lesson here for us and we'll be done. You and I need and we need to seek the leading of the Lord in evangelism. See, this encounter happens in the desert, which is not on your top ten list. For, for evangelistic encounters, right? You have this Ethiopian who's a black African in a chariot who's a eunuch reading the Bible. I mean, totally bizarre already. Philip wanders to the desert, engages him. He happens to be reading Isaiah. It's too bizarre, right, to be coincidental. And we know it's not because God had led Philip to this time and to this place. He puts two unlikely people together. And, 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 and here's the deal. We know that, that Philip actively sought the leading of the Lord and of God's Spirit in evangelism. Look at verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, verse 29, and the Spirit said to Philip, verse 39, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. We're not exactly sure how the Holy Spirit was speaking to Philip. We don't know if it was through impressions or prayer or circumstances. Um, the point is this, and here's the most important point for us. Do you seek God's leading in evangelism? You may say, well, Paul, God God doesn't doesn't lead me like that. I, I, I would share my faith more if he did. And here's my question to you and to me. Have we asked him? Seriously, have we asked him? 
When is the last time you and I got up in the morning and said, Lord, direct me today, hourly, daily. Bring the people into my life that you want me to engage. Lord, give me divine appointments, the airplane, the supermarket, the soccer team, the people I bike with, the kids my, play t- kid, my, my, my son plays t-ball with. Lord, direct me. I seek your leading. And, I, and I'll just give you a challenge. If you do this, do not be shocked. <laughs> when God brings people and all their messiness and all their problems and all their inconvenience into your life, and if we're not doing this, if we're not in the habit of doing this, it points out to me what is probably one of our biggest obstacles of all, and we're just unaware. We are just tend to be people that are obtuse. We're not in tune with the fading world around us. We, were, we are not praying that God would open our eyes to the need. What does Jesus say? Lift up your eyes. Look. See, the harvest is plentiful. But what? That's not the problem. Harvest is always plentiful. It's the workers. They are few. And we know this. Somebody asked me after the first service, well, how do we know that Simon's conversion was not genuine, but the eunuch's was? And I I think the answer is this. The eunuch fell in love with the Word of God. When you go back and read this passage in Isaiah, earlier in these verses, it's all about the promises of blessing that God promises to give to who? Eunuchs. He's hungering. He's thirsting. He just needs direction. And when Philip opens his eyes to the Word of God, God changes his heart and he is baptized. Folks, we want to see what happens in this passage happen here at Four Oaks all the time. We're about to celebrate a couple of baptisms we want to be doing this so often, it's just, it's just you just expect it every, every week. Like we take the Lord's Supper. We're here to baptize because someone has come to faith in Christ. As you listen to these stories, as you witness these baptisms today, I, I ask you to do this. Rehearse the stories of the deacon, eunuch, and magician and pray that the gospel would grab your heart and that despite all the messiness and the obstacles, you would be led by the, sh- by the Spirit to share what Jesus has done for you. Let's watch together.